Singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Singularity One on One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. If you guys enjoy the show, you can help me make it better in one of several ways. You can simply like this video on YouTube, you can leave a comment on the blog, or you can simply go and make a donation. As always, I will be the man with the questions, and today, the man with the answers is Chris Lewicki, who is the president and chief asteroid miner at Planetary Resources. For those of you who don't know, uh, Planetary Resources is the very first company that plans to locate and mine asteroids. So, hi, Chris. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Hi, Nicola. Pleasure to be with you today. Uh, excited about our conversation. Fantastic. So, let's just jump in, Chris. And would you mind telling us who you are in your own words? If you were to present yourself in a couple of words, how would you do it? So, I am an aerospace engineer. I have a bachelor's and master's in that degree. I've been a practicing system engineer in uh, the 10 years that I worked for the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, I had the great fortune to uh, be part of the team that created Spirit and Opportunity, and I was flight director when we landed them on Mars. I was only 29 years uh, old at the time, and then had the opportunity to do it all over again for the uh, lander sent to the North Pole of Mars, the Mars Phoenix lander. And uh, I've always been a passionate guy about space. And uh, when my co-founders, Peter Diamandis from the XPRIZE Foundation and Singularity University and Eric Anderson, uh, chairman of the board of uh, Space Adventures, uh, approached me about helping them to start planetary resources and to mine asteroids, I couldn't have been more excited. Fantastic. And, and by the way, as a side note, uh, I've already interviewed Peter Diamandis some time ago on this show. And, and I think your colleague Eric might be actually uh, on my mail list. So uh, perhaps he would be the next one I should interview eventually. I think he would be. He's working with uh, Charles Simone uh, and doing a lot of uh, what I think is going to be uh, groundbreaking new work in software with Intentional Software Corporation. That's fantastic. Okay, so I, I make sure I follow up on that. So, Chris, let me ask you, how did you get first inspired and then involved in space exploration? Well, I think it was probably, you know, popular culture, popular media, whether it was Star Wars or Star Trek or Carl Sagan and the Cosmos series, uh, National Geographic, programs like that just kind of inspired you with the wonder of the universe and uh, the beautiful things that were out there and just how many questions there were to be answered. I think I probably started considering it as a career when the Voyager 2 probe flew by Neptune. Uh, Neptune was this blue dot of light in the sky that uh, we had only ever seen through a telescope. And there, in uh, one day, it went from this blue dot to this other world with storms and moons and uh, even a little ring system. Uh, and it was that type of exploration, I think, that really set me with the bug. And I learned that uh, aerospace engineers do that type of thing and build these spacecraft and that a place called the Jet Propulsion Laboratory was the place that created the Voyager. Uh, and uh, my course was kind of set from there. I had a little bit of a deviation in my teenage years with uh, rock and roll, but uh, I came back from that, I went back into engineering and uh, went to the University of Arizona, uh, which was really 
one of the preeminent schools in not only astronomy, astronomy, but planetary science. They actually were very involved in the Apollo program in the 60s in helping to select and then analyze the sites of the moon landings. And uh, they uh, have been and they continue to be very involved in planetary exploration. The, the Phoenix Mars lander, actually, that uh, I worked on uh, when I was at JPL was led by the University of Arizona, and they are now leading the mission for the next sample return from an asteroid called OSIRIS-REx. So it's uh, it's really just been something that uh, the bug bit me very early on, and I've been fortunate to find opportunities along the way uh, to uh, help make the, the next missions and the next discoveries happen. Now, let me grab that very interesting and curious uh biographical side note about rock and roll. Can you tell uh, yeah. us a little bit more about that? Well, uh, so yeah, as a side note, uh, I've, uh, I'm a musician. I play guitar and uh, piano. I've played tuba, trombone, drums. I can pinch hit wow. on bass if I need to. Uh, my mother tried to get me to play cello and violin, but that never took. Uh, and I still stick with uh, most of the guitar, but I can play the piano. Uh, I'd always liked, you know, the consoles of the controls and all the little knobs and dials and the home recording stuff. And uh, I was going down, uh, uh, you know, exploring being a recording engineer in studios for doing that. And I actually made the decision not to do that in Carnegie Hall in New York. I remember it quite vividly. Uh, our our choir in high school was wow. performing at Carnegie Hall. Uh, we had uh, finished that, and I had watched a concert there. And I remember walking up past the balcony and seeing that console and thinking to myself that I could do grander things in engineering. Uh, and uh, that's the path I chose. And uh, the music can continue to be a hobby, which it is. Yeah, but that's amazing because not many engineers, uh, at least not many engineers that I know of, have that artistic side. Actually, uh, to skip forward to one of my later questions, you know, I'm a philosopher by education, and I have a very good uh, engineering friend of mine who quite often uh, likes to point out to me that all philosophers are bullshitters. <laughs> because, uh, you see, they just bullshit around all day long, and in the end of the day, there's nothing for you to touch, see, and feel, and, and show for their work, whereas an engineer always has something to show for it. Do you agree with that? Oh, I think we all have our, our own products that we produce. As a system engineer, I always kind of had that, that same thing, and uh, I always kind of helped other people's designs better be better, but never really did my own. And actually, to go back to your initial comment about the music, uh, one thing that took me a while to realize was that engineering uh, in particular, maybe more than other sciences, is a very creative uh, thing. And I found that many engineers actually are musicians because uh, they kind of have that kind of their brain activated, whether they're a musician or an artist, uh, creating something out of nothing, coming up with a design that does something where, uh, there, where there wasn't something before is is inherently a creative aspect. And, um, you know, I think you could probably turn a philosophy spin on it as well. Mm -hmm. I hope so. Uh, but what about science fiction? Did it play any importance? Because we know that for Carl Sagan, it played a major role, for example. Well, I did not read a lot of science fiction growing up. I think I read more fantasy, like the Tolkien and the... Oh, the, the Lord of uh, the Rings series. Lewis and... Uh, uh, maybe things all the way back to H.G. Wells. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't get into what many people in the space community look at as, you know, the science fiction type stuff, probably till I was in college and had already decided to do it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 
from a popular culture standpoint, you know, I've always been kind of a, more of a Star Wars guy than a Trekkie guy, and that's coming out in some of the activities that Planetary Resources is doing. Uh, our, our company, Arcid Astronautics, and uh, the name of our spacecraft, Arcid, actually comes out of the Star Wars universe in that Arakid Industries was the manufacturer of the Viper Model 101 probe droid, the same probe droid that was in the opening scene of Empire Strikes Back on the ice planet Hoth. Mm-hmm. So uh, we like that we think that uh, Planetary Resources is a manufacturer of probe droids. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I would actually uh, come a little bit back, uh, later back to that point, but let me start with the general picture first. So let's assume zero knowledge on the part of our audience with respect to your company, which is a actually very unrealistic given my audience, but let's start from the ground up. Can you please tell us what is Planetary Resources and what's its uh, mission statement, perhaps? Planetary Resources founded with the purpose of expanding the economic sphere of influence of humanity off the surface of the planet and into the solar system. Uh, A relatively simple idea. We want to have an economy in space uh, that is much like the economy that we have on Earth. And to achieve that mission, we believe that resources are really key. Every frontier that we've settled, every frontier that we've opened up, our exploration has either been driven by or uh, enabled by the use of resources. And in space, the most attractive resources are the near-Earth asteroids. And that's a very important phrase in that, near-Earth. In many ways, they're actually closer to us from an energy standpoint, then the surface of the moon is uh, about 17% or right now about 1,700 asteroids are actually closer to us than landing on the surface of the moon. So today our company is creating robotic prospectors, the ARCID series of spacecraft, the ARCID 100, which actually is something that the public can take part in today on the Kickstarter that we're doing for crowdfunding the public engagement and public access of these satellites. And we're going to take the public along on this journey as we both uh, deploy these spacecraft in Earth orbit to find our asteroid targets, and then as we go out to the asteroids to learn more about which ones are the most uh, valuable to develop and mines for space. Mm-hmm. Before we get to the Kickstarter project, let me ask you to give us a little more details perhaps about the ARCID-100 and then uh, the perhaps the consequent models that you have planned afterwards? Sure. So we are uh, a prospecting company, an information company, in that we cannot develop a mine or know which asteroid to go to until we're able to identify it, uh, characterize it, and uh, know exactly where it is and how much it might be worth. And to do this, uh, this is the great thing in a a singularity-type topic. Uh, Technology has advanced to the point where small teams can now do what it used to take entire governments to do. And we can have privately financed companies that can create robots to go out into the solar system and answer these questions and give us the very basic information that we need to be able to find the most interesting asteroids. And the other thing that's exciting and enabled by technology is these things aren't billion-dollar missions anymore. They aren't things that are sizes of cars or buses. They're actually little guys like this. And I have this, this one just right here behind me. This is... I have to stand back a little bit. This is a full-scale mechanical prototype of the ARCID-100. And uh, it's about 30 pounds. Uh, uh, In SI units, it's about uh, 20 centimeters on a side and about 40 centimeters tall. And this is 
what we need for prospecting at the asteroid. Uh, it's got deployable solar panels. We have a portion of our optic that uh, deploys when it gets out into space. And then all the electronics and smarts that we need to be able to run this thing out in deep space fits in this little box back here. And this is what uh, our, our company is, is currently working on and what has been enabled by the just the really rapid progress in technology. So this is something that 10 years ago would have weighed a ton, uh, would have cost a couple hundred million dollars, and would have taken a team of hundreds of engineers and scientists to be able to deploy. But today, weighs 30 pounds, costs about $5 million, uh, and takes dozens of people uh, to be able to deploy. And uh, this is really part of the thing where we're able to uh, create this in a way that we can make dozens, maybe hundreds of these as we're exploring uh, asteroids really with swarms of them from a reliability standpoint, a lot like cloud computing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what allows us to do something, you know, really more cost effectively than it has ever been done. Now, uh, to get the sense of the grander vision, that's basically step one. How about the ARCID 200 and 300, which are the next uh, steps, perhaps, of your sort of vision of how you're going to go about accomplishing your goals of mining asteroids? Yeah, so step one is getting this new low-cost capability into Earth orbit where we can use it to identify the targets. Uh, the 200 and 300 are really upgrades to that where it's still the same size, generally the same you know, optics and sensors and all those things, but we add the capability of propulsion onto it to be able to get to these deep space targets. And then, you, as you know, when you drive out into the country and your cell signal goes down, uh, once you get farther away from the Earth, you create a communications challenge. So we're using optical communication or laser communications with this large primary optic to be able to uh, communicate millions of miles away from Earth. So we will take the ARCID 200s and 300s to potentially dozens of asteroids. And what we'll have is the capability to both, what, like I said before, find the best asteroids, and then once we've found them, be able to deploy experiments and then bit by bit build up that capability that you need to understand how to process this material, how to extract out the water or the metals uh, that you would be developing, and ultimately then be able to bring that material to a market. So it kind of iterates from there, and we, we won't know exactly the technology required to mine and beneficiate the asteroid until we've identified the very specific asteroid, much like mining occurs here on Earth. No two mines are exactly alike. Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you a bit of a more technical question, uh, which might actually uh, betray my ignorance, but... You said that you would be using lasers for communication. Now, does that mean you need to have a direct line of sight? Uh, in that case, uh, in the simplest form, we would. Uh, fortunately, space is mostly empty, so that's not too much of a challenge. Yeah, the but... biggest challenge actually is getting through the atmosphere and the Earth. So uh, what's great about this is this isn't just our idea. This is something that... Uh, uh, the U.S. government, whether it's Defense Department or the NASA, and uh, um, uh, European developers and Japanese have also been working on of being able to have an optical terminal on a satellite up above the Earth and then with RF communications be able to get through uh, the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from deep space, it's like taking a kind of a low data rate signal. It might only be, for example, uh, uh, hundreds of kilobits per second. Uh, and uh, that's a a very low data rate for something that's relatively near to the Earth. Mm -hmm. My concern is, though, that at least based on some of the graphics that I've seen, the density of asteroids in, say, the asteroid belt 
looks pretty impressive to me at least. Uh, <laughs> well, that's where uh, I think Star Wars has probably muddied things a little bit. If you were to stand on any one of the uh, uh, the 600,000 known asteroids that are out in the main asteroid belt, the next nearest asteroid to you would probably be on the order of a million miles away. It's mostly empty space, and uh, you know these things aren't tumbling end over end. You have to maneuver the Millennium Falcon between them. Uh, they're actually rotating as fast as the hour hand on the clock. So, you know, once every 12 hours or so, they're spinning very slowly. So space is a very big place. It's mostly empty, mostly vacuum, and uh, optical communications is a very effective way uh, to get a little bit of power and to get a signal to go a very long way. Fantastic. I don't mind bringing to light a little bit of my ignorance here, as long as you don't focus on it too much. <laughs> But uh, let's move on to your Kickstarter project, and let me ask you this now. So you've developed this uh, satellite that you said is about $5 million. Now, why try to crowdfund uh, that project on Kickstarter rather than, say, get private investment? And based on uh, what I've seen with you guys, there's a lot of people who are actually willing and wanting to give you money to invest in you. Yes. Well, uh, I think it's a common misconception, and uh, we've done our best to try to communicate this. We're already building these spacecraft and launching them into space, whether the Kickstarter project is successful or not. Uh, this is part of our mission to go out and identify asteroids and to mine them, and that's what our investors have, in fact, invested in. And, uh, you know, that's uh, many millions of dollars to, to do this activity. It's uh, Well, it's cheaper than it's ever been done before. It's, it's, still, uh, it's still not completely cheap. Uh, what we're doing in the Kickstarter project, actually, is giving the opportunity for the public to engage with what we're doing. We had so much interest since we announced our company last April in 2012 of people that either wanted to work for us, wanted to volunteer, uh, wanted to send us their ideas, wanted to invest, uh, wanted to actually send in donations or buy stuff from us. And they just really wanted some way to be involved. And we thought about that over the last year and saw Kickstarter as an excellent platform to be able to put out some ideas of here's some things that we could do, uh, but we would only do if there was public interest in doing them. Mm -hmm. And if, if we put out the Kickstarter and it failed and no one was interested in these things, that would have been a perfectly fine result for us because we would have just then gone on what we're doing with exploring the asteroids. But as the campaign has shown, we're just about to cross our uh, our successful first goal. We've laid out an ambitious uh, secondary goal now of going out and being able to find alien planets uh, if we're able to get to our, our second stretch goal. Mm -hmm. But this is something that uh, we thought there might be some public interest in it, and the public has uh, shown their interest by – uh, pledging levels of support from things in uh, space selfies of taking your own picture and putting it up in space and being able to see that orbiting the Earth, or all the way out to enabling education in classrooms or museums and science centers or even universities and research centers. And you can also, if you want to personally, take a hand at the wheel of a space telescope orbiting the Earth and make your own observations as a private astronomer. And we've really had interest and support across the board with all of these ideas. Uh, we didn't actually anticipate that all of them would be that popular, but they, they really have. Now, let me just make my own uh, personal disclaimer here, and that is to say that I've personally already made a small co contribution to your Kickstarter project so that everybody knows that I've kind of made my judgment on it here. Um, and I've already uh, 
actually covered your company twice on singularityweblog.com, once when it launched and once when you had the, the launch of your Kickstarter campaign. Uh, but now, let me ask you this, though. Uh, uh, thank you very much for your support, of course. Oh, oh no, no problem. I, I wish I could uh, give more, but my, mine is very minor, very, very minuscule. Um, now, how are you not going to be overrun uh, or overwhelmed by, you know, so far something like almost 10,000 people who have donated and who, in a way, would potentially claim a little piece of the time of working on, on that uh, satellite? Well, this satellite actually is entirely dedicated to public use. Uh, that's where we uh, put this out. We'll have several of these in orbit. Uh, so in terms of being able to uh, do what we want to do for uh, progressing technology and making the observations that we need in identifying asteroids, we'll have our own telescopes for doing that. Uh, and this has been put aside so that people can buy time on that. This is something that's never been available before, and uh, there's certainly been a fair amount of interest. But I guess a, a second thing, and this might appeal to uh, uh, people in the in the Singularity Hub audience, um, we see as much as this is an opportunity to um, you know see if there is an interest for people to engage in in the ways that I described. It's an opportunity for us to really build a community about, around what the company is doing, build uh, people who are interested in following along what we're doing. Uh, being able to create educational material, whether it is on space telescopes or asteroid mining, uh, being able to crowdsource certain aspects of our design and uh, creation of algorithms, and maybe even analysis of data that comes back from the space telescope. The world is really transforming in the way that we get projects and technical and engineering work done. And we see that this is very important to have a community that is very engaged as passionate as a uh, passionate about our mission as we are, uh, and this is an opportunity to just directly involve everyone in opening up the space frontier, uh, just and democratizing it. Chris, uh, just to correct you, my audience is the Singularity Weblog audience, not Singularity Hub. Oh, uh, but that's okay. I know okay. Keith, I know Keith Kleiner. He's a great guy, and Singularity Hub is indeed the biggest blog in the niche. But I'm about second or third, right after him, on his well, heels. We need to get you up to the top then. That's what we need to do. <laughs> We're working on it, so, or perhaps join forces. But uh, um, my question was more specific about the bandwidth, because I think you've mentioned kilobits, optical communication with kilobit transfer rates of information. And I'm just wondering when you have thousands upon thousands of people trying to put their picture in space and things like that, how is that going to work in reality with such a small or narrow bandwidth? Well, we'll actually only be testing the optical communications capability on the ARCID-100 missions. Uh, that is a capability that is best for deep space, and, and in that case, kilobits will do for uh, information coming back from the asteroids. While we're closer to the Earth, we can actually use standard RF communication. We can get a lot better data rates. Yes. And uh, in terms of sending the pictures around, um, you know, this is something that we will be able to preload the pictures that are at least going up, uh, onto the spacecraft before we launch it, so we don't have to upload all that type of stuff, and we just have to download that st that material that's created in space. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the latest major updates on your Kickstarter uh, page was uh, the fact that uh, you promised that if you reach, I think, a million dollars, you would uh, also upgrade the satellite so that you can search for exoplanets. Uh, so our our campaign goal for doing the broad public access space telescope. 
uh, was a million dollar goal, and we're just about to reach that. And as we're passing through that goal, we announced a stretch goal, and that goal is actually if we reach two million dollars. Oh, for two million, that's right. Yeah, we'll be able to upgrade the stability systems uh, on the spacecraft and really work the design so that when it's in space, we'll be able to use it for discovering exo, uh, extra extrasolar system planets. Uh, and schedule the time that's necessary to do that and partner with uh, great people like uh, Dr. Sarah Seeger, uh, an exoplanets uh, researcher at MIT, in analyzing the data. So this is what we've laid out. We, we hope we can reach this goal by the end of the campaign. If we do, we're going to uh, do this exoplanet work. And if we don't, well, we'll just stick to uh, the things that we said before. Mm-hmm. But this is really the exciting thing about participatory science and citizen science is we've gotten a lot of interest in what we might be able to do really in a new way of getting science done. And this is a goal that we set out. We, uh, we hope that people also will find this interesting and uh, take us to our goal. Uh, and uh, we can announce something even more exciting on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you, do you have a contingency plan? Because you've been doing a fantastic job of uh, public relations and fundraising so far on Kickstarter. So what if you surpass $2 million by a substantial amount? Is there another <laughs> thing that you are holding back on us? Well, if there, you know, it's, if another we have carrot? such a demand, if we have such a demand for this, uh, that we're not able to complete it with one satellite, we might have to put up two. Uh, and that is something that is perfectly acceptable to us. We're, we're not there yet. We've got all the capacity that we need, uh, for, uh, the support that we've gotten so far. But, uh, if people want to see two satellites, they should, uh, you know, support it more. And that's something that we can certainly do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think just in addition to that, we've got, we've got a few other things that, uh, we're holding out. And, you know, all this, each little thing that we do does, uh, take some amount of money to make these things happen. And uh, the Kickstarter activity really helps us offset the cost of activities that the public has shown interest in. But for an asteroid mining company, we may or may not actually – we wouldn't do that if there were no other reason to do it. But Kickstarter allows us to really respond to people's interest for them to leverage uh, what we're doing as we're pursuing our asteroid mining business. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Now, let me ask you a little bit uh, about the timeline So what happens after the uh, Kickstarter fundraising campaign is over? And if you can perhaps break it into the near term, say, one to five years, then the midterm, five to ten, and perhaps the really long term, say, ten to twenty years for planetary resources. How do you see that vision? Sure. So uh, why don't we – I think there's two things here. We can talk about the Kickstarter timeline and then the company timeline. Sure. In the asteroid mining uh, pursuit that we're working on, we will be launching our first spacecraft uh, and uh, demonstrating our technology and getting ready for our future missions next spring. Uh, we've got a launch in April where we'll be taking the core technology of the Arcid Space Telescope and launching that into space as a CubeSat. Uh, about uh, a year and a half after that, in the late summer of 2015, we'll be launching the Arcid 100s, the telescopes, uh, several of those into Earth orbit. And about two years following that, we anticipate that we'll be able to have finished the upgrades in communications and in propulsion that allows us to start going out and exploring uh, really up close in person the first asteroid targets. And that is really a period of exploration for the company in the, the second half of this decade and the early part of the 2020s, where we're really just going out like those Viper Model 101 probe droids and looking at all the asteroids in the system and finding the best ones. 
Uh, I think that uh, it will be possible for us once we've identified the right carbonaceous chondrite asteroid, a C-type asteroid that's rich in water. Um, if we've identified that by the early 2020s, we'll be able to touch down on the surface of that asteroid and conduct the first experiment in extracting maybe just a simple little test tube of water. Not much. We wouldn't bring it back to Earth, but we would just show that we can process asteroid material and we can remove water from it and make that water uh, something that is available as a commercial product. And from there, we essentially scale up and we start supplying uh, both that material for a research and science standpoint, we uh, start supplying fuel depots, which really are going to be the cornerstone of a space-based economy, and providing radiation material for space habitats. Water is the best mitigator of cosmic radiation uh, that there is, and of course it's very expensive to launch into space. But the real exciting part happens in water's use as a fuel source in space. And a lot of times it's kind of weird to think of water as fuel, but it's hydrogen and oxygen. These are the same elements that uh, launched all 135 space shuttle missions uh, into space. And it's the most efficient chemical propulsion that is theoretically possible. And it is in near limitless quantities in space. And once we unlock water as a fuel source, we really can do anything else we want in the solar system. That's when we start burning starship enterprises and habitats and uh, exploring Mars and uh, uh, building large uh, structures out of the iron, nickel, and cobalt metals. And uh, also have the ability to bring back the very rare platinum group metals. Uh, some of these asteroids are hundreds of times more concentrated than the most productive mines are here on Earth. And the platinum group metals are the material... Uh, that is valuable enough and is useful enough uh, as an element to bring all the way back to the surface of the Earth, where it actually is even more rare than the rare Earth elements. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So, Chris, let me see if I can bring you back to the name uh, uh, of the of the satellite after the Imperial Probe droids. Yes. So, um, I have a couple of uh, questions from from my audience and. Um, one of them, uh, his name is Chris Armstrong, asked this question, uh, and let me read it. This project is so 19th century. Wouldn't it be better in the long run to put all available resources and brain power into a super-accelerated molecular assembler program, which would revolutionize the entire world, so we could more quickly get to the day when we can manufacture anything we need, rather than becoming old-timey miners of space? <laughs> in, in other words, that smacks too much of colonial imperialism to him, I think. Well, there's probably still a little bit of it there, but in a lot of ways, there's, there's a lot of information technology tied up in this. Part of going out and developing space resources is so that we don't need to ship stuff from the Earth. We don't want to send the colonists with all the rations that they'll ever need for their colony. We want to be able to send the designs and the plans ascend the bits and then use uh, exponential technologies like additive manufacturing to actually print out these structures, print out these habitats, uh, maybe even print food um, from the local resources. And we can have essentially a self-sustained uh, environment out there in space by using the resources that are out there. So, you know, that's certainly not like the uh, colonial days in terms of how that was done. Uh, but, you know, in some ways it was. The, uh, to be able to use the, the resources living off the land, this is just the 21st century version of that. Mm -hmm. And and then um, how about the 
the sort of the, the molecular assembler end of, 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 uh, of his question. Wouldn't it be more uh, sort of cost-effective <laughs> perhaps to, to invest in, in researching that kind of nanofabricator or something like that rather than, again, going to extract the resources? Or do we need those uh, asteroids for the raw material potentially for those 3D printers that you mentioned and stuff? Well, no, that's what, that, that's what I was actually discussing uh, was that uh, the asteroids themselves would be the raw materials mm -hmm. uh, and the, the nano-assemblers, uh, would be what would be using that material and using that uh, feedstock to really create whatever we needed in space. Mm -hmm. uh, there's still a little bit of problem of shipping that stuff around, and yes. shipping costs dominate a lot of what we do. But the other thing to realize, I think, is a lot of the technology that we're talking about, certainly the prospecting, and even a lot of aspects of the mining development, are available with technologies that exist today. Asteroid mining might sound kind of futuristic, but that future is here. We have discovered 95% of all of the asteroids that we know of in the last 15 years. Um, and we've only, we're only 2% done, so there's so much more to go yet. Uh, and if we look at where technology will allow us to run these spaceships with uh, increasing levels of autonomy, being able to send back the result instead of the raw data. So when I talked about, you know, we're limited by the laws of physics in terms of how fast we can make the data go. But we're not limited by how powerful of a computer and how much autonomy uh, we can put on a robot so that it can tell us that this asteroid is of this mass, it's shaped this way, the good stuff is in these areas, and it gives you back the map instead mm -hmm. of sending back you the raw data that you have to interpret. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So <laughs> I have another critical question here, and it kind of connects to your sort of geeky interest in Star Wars in a way. So I interviewed um, not long ago Jacques Fresco. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's uh, the inventor and the man behind the Venus Project. Okay. And his criticism is uh, goes something like this. He argues that if we don't resolve the problems that we have here on Earth right now, uh, things like conflict, war, uh, starvation, competition for scarce resources – all that's going to happen with the conquering of space is basically we're going to take and export uh, those things anywhere that we go. Uh, and so, for example, uh, in your case, competition for resources can lead to actual Star Wars, just like imperial co colonialism led to colonial wars. Mm -hmm. Imagine, say a European consortium, a Japanese or a Chinese and Indian consortium in their own rights trying to do what you do, wouldn't that lead to competition? Or is it space is a big place and there's space for everybody, basically? Uh, uh, you know, I think that's certainly true. Uh, if, you know, we waited to resolve all of our problems and we waited to uh, uh, close all conflicts before we ever moved forward, we would never leave the house. Um, this is something that uh, it doesn't have anything to, you know, and how we're doing things and how we're managing things. I think it has to do with how we operate as humans and space exploration is you know no different uh we're exploring we're opening a frontier uh from a uh, commercial aspect of it so there'll certainly be some competition but uh like any other area of human enterprise there are regulations and methods for resolving conflict uh that in most cases don't involve war uh this is just standard business uh and you know, I think this is actually part of uh, preserving what we have here on Earth uh, as 
uh, we continue to grow as a population. And as we get more and more of the rising billions who are increasing their standard of living and having an inherent demand for the standard of living that uh, you know you and I already enjoy today. So being able to expand into space to um, you know kind of get out of the cradle uh, is, I think, part of actually uh, resolving some of these conflicts. And space is the opportunity to do it right. Uh, and to learn from all of our past lessons uh, and it, uh, to think that we shouldn't do it because we haven't got it right so far, I think is a very defeatist attitude. Uh, I think this is an opportunity really like none other, and uh, it's an opportunity to improve ourselves as humans uh, and really to make that next um, development the best one we've done yet. Mm-hmm. Chris, time is advancing here, and I think I'm afraid we only have about four or five minutes left of our interview. So let me see if I can go through the last four or five questions here. All right, so, rapid fire. <laughs> uh, is there any fundamental misperception or confusion that you tend to encar- uh, encounter often about space exploration that you would like to clear for us? Something that uh, really bugs you. Uh, well, we talked about the asteroid belt uh, and that... Uh, there's a lot of space there. I think uh, it's it's difficult for people often to understand without the rocket science training that in space it's not about the distance. It's about the energy. And uh, because uh, these asteroids may be farther away from the moon, uh, the moon, for example, seems like it would be a much more logical target. But it's really about the energy. And uh, the what's great about it is once you're in space, whether you're at the International Space Station, on the surface of the moon, in Mars, uh, at an asteroid, uh, at a fuel depot, all of those places actually are relatively close to each other when you consider the transportation energy costs. And it is the Earth that is very far away mm-hmm. because of the, the big gravity well that we live in. So this is the exciting thing about opening up space to resources is those resources in space will be so important to explore space. Chris, how important is artificial intelligence for space exploration and for your own uh, satellites in particular? I think in the long term, it will be one of the enabling technologies. I often talk about where we have between uh, the, um, you know, the cruise control on your car uh, on one end to uh, self-driving cars in the state of Nevada on the other end and the continuum in between. So we've gotten in spacecraft a little bit better than the cruise control technology, but we're not quite to the self-driving cars. And I think artificial intelligence and autonomy and telepresence is really the technology that is enabling for us to be able to do these things in the environment of space many miles, many millions of miles away where there's a delay because of the speed of the light. Um, but as we've seen in the last 5, 10, 15 years, um, we always overpredict what happens in a year and always underpredict what happens in 10 years. And I think in the 2020s, the technologies that we'll have at our disposal will make a lot of our problems look trivial. Mm-hmm. I really hope you're right. So uh, when we're getting into that timeline, the 2020s and the 2030s, uh, it's perhaps, perhaps appropriate to ask you what's your take on the technological singularity? Because Ray Kurzweil's timeline is kind of around that time. Yeah, well, I've, I've read Ray's book and, uh, I've, uh, been a faculty member at, uh, Ray and, uh, Peter Diamandis Singularity University. And I think that, you know, it is certainly a certainty. I, I don't know if I have too much comments on when I think the timeline might be. Uh, but this is one of those, uh, challenging things for us as a species. We're, we're getting to a point where the power and the knowledge that we're able to wield is able to do things 
that we don't quite appreciate uh, what the results may be. Uh, but, you know, that won't stop a few of us from experimenting. Uh, like any great tool, there is a strong advantage to its use and a little bit of risk as well. Uh, and I hope that in pursuing this stuff, we really can find those applications that, uh, you know, bring us forward as a species, uh, that improve the quality of life for everyone, uh, and uh, really redefine the human condition uh, in the way that we interact with each other and our environment. What's the best place for people to find more about you and your work? Uh, you can follow us uh, at planetaryresources.com. We've got an email list that we uh, send uh, updates out to very frequently, post videos there. Uh, we're very active on social media, and you can find all of our channels on the website. And if you want to get very involved, I would encourage everyone to support our Kickstarter project. You can find the links for those uh, on the Planetary Resources website. Time is running out for that. You've got to get in by June 30th, and we make no promise whether we're going to ever do this again. Uh, so now is the time to get involved, and we're looking forward to taking everyone along in the ride. Chris, my last question is always the same, and that is, What is the single most important thing that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this interview with you today? I think it's that things have never been more exciting or uh, more optimistic than they have ever been in our entire history. We are living in one of the most amazing times ever. And literally, we are seeing that things that were once science fiction are quickly becoming science fact. And in many ways, the reality is better than the sci-fi authors anticipated it. Uh, but that doesn't happen all by itself. That happens by people having a vision, by people pursuing that, having incredible perseverance through adversity, uh, through not listening to the doubters and really just you know, believing in their core that these things are doable. You know, I've got a personal model that is you know, stop reading about it and start doing it. And that's what I'm doing at Planetary Resources in trying to use my knowledge, uh, my passion, and the passion of my entire team in making this sci-fi future a reality. And that's what I encourage for every, all, everyone in your viewers to do the same, uh, whether the topic is asteroid mining or artificial intelligence or somewhere in between. Stop reading about it and start doing it. I love it. Chris Lewicki, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. Uh, enjoyed the talk very much and uh, look forward to talking with you again in the future. We have a, a, a limitless top, a set of topics that we could talk about on at great length. Absolutely. I would try to get you again. Absolutely. Thank you, Chris. All right. Thanks, Nicola.